Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. Regular changes to and state-to-state variations in U.S. data privacy laws often leave the public wondering who has access to their data and how it might be used. This is especially concerning when it comes to consumer health data, where misuse of personal information could negatively impact patients' care, treatment, and livelihood. Concerns that have only been exacerbated for women and LGBTQ individuals with the overturning of Roe and Florida's recent protections of medical conscience bill. I'm here with Dynamics' Jen Proietti-Fox and Courtney Ciccarelli to discuss data privacy rules and their implications for patients, health tech companies, and the industry at large. Welcome, Jen and Courtney. We're so happy to have you on the podcast to discuss data privacy. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. Yeah, excited to be here and talk about this. Jen, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about what data privacy looks like when it comes to consumer health data? Unlike in the EU, which has a comprehensive data privacy law called the General Data Protection Regulation, the U.S. has various federal and state laws that cover different aspects of data privacy, like health data, financial information, or data collected from children. You'll have to bear with me for a minute because this mix of laws is a bit like an alphabet soup. So some of the acronyms include HIPAA, FERPA, PAPA, and many more that are designed to target only specific types of data in special circumstances. And when it comes to healthcare data, we most often think of HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HIPAA created standards for how healthcare providers can use a patient's personal health data, but these regulations only apply to covered entities. I'm using air quotes here since uh, you can't see me, (laughs) Um, but these covered entities are providers, health plans, and healthcare clearinghouses. On the other side, non-covered entities, which include consumer health apps, generally do not need to comply with HIPAA, and any personal data shared with the app does not follow federal patient privacy regulations. So this is a really important distinguishing factor here. To add even more complexity, right, the fact that there isn't a single federal regulation, right, there isn't even consistency across states. So So far, we've seen a few states, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, and Virginia enact some pretty comprehensive consumer data privacy laws, but this isn't consistent across all 50 states. But these laws do allow individuals to access and delete personal information, as well as opt out of the sale of their own information. And they also require commercial websites or online services to have a privacy policy and post it. And this policy should describe, you know, the types of personal information collected, what information is then shared with third parties, as well as how can consumers request changes to certain information. And so last year, lawmakers proposed a broad data privacy regulation, but this, this didn't go and didn't pass through Congress. So agencies like Health and Human Services, the FTC, They're trying to expand data protections, especially when it comes to health data. And we saw that uh, last December, the HHS issued a bulletin that expanded the definition of personally identifiable health information. 
And we've also seen FTC you know, crack down. We've seen the crackdown on healthcare organizations like GoodRx, BetterHelp, Cerebral. A lot of this has been in the news lately, but they're starting to take a look at privacy violations and get involved there. All of this is really complex, even just like listening, Jen, to you list all the acronyms and, and going through who's involved, right? It leaves people really confused. Patients are confused about what laws apply based on what state they might live in, um, who might have access to their data, and how they're using it. Yeah, I feel like confused is like a, a good word for it. There's probably a lot of other words too, and kind of expand on everything you've said. Patients are confused and they've made it very clear with their actions that they feel increasingly uncomfortable with social media and tech companies having access to this data. And the research shows it as well. In an AMA survey, more than 92% of people believe privacy is a right and their health data should not be available for purchase by corporations or any other individuals, really. You know, 92%, that's a really bold number there. And also, nearly 75% of people are concerned about protecting the privacy of their health data. So we're hearing that everyone believes it's their right to have that protection and that a lot of people are concerned that they do not have those protections or are not getting those protections. And as a result of these fairly significant concerns, we're seeing it in action. So users have been deleting or shifting their app and digital usage pretty quickly and I'd say pretty widely across the different apps that they're using. Companies are seeing this and reacting in response to these concerns and the actions of users, of, of consumers. We've seen these you know, consumer and digital health companies take action. We've seen a lot of public privacy statements, putting out press releases, making it clear to the public what their privacy procedures and usages are enabling anonymous accounts so you can still use their app or use their features, but anonymize yourself as, as best as possible. Opt-in and opt-out features for how data is stored or shared, enabling you to have your own local storage of data so it stays with you versus remote, offering options to delete your data when you want to, right? Turning off location tracking. We've seen so much around, you know, location tracking. And I think a lot of people didn't even know that was a thing, right? So now, you know, companies have taken action and tried to build these features, really being public with what they're doing. And they're also evaluating their third-party relationships, which for a long time were kind of out of sight, out of mind in a, in a lot of ways. But now they're closely following the, the forensic data trail, really leaning into what happens to data when it leaves their company, the relationships that they have, and, you know, what's happening much, much further down the line than they were looking into previously. And you know, even still, with all of these actions or all of these different policies, it's complicated still. It can be misunderstood and really not provide the full privacy protection that companies think they might be doing in their best interest of, the, of their consumers or their patients. We really saw this come to life in the menstrual tracking space post-Dobbs, which at the time of this podcast, we're coming up on about a year out from. And the immediate aftermath from this, you know, there was a major flurry of switching activity between apps as companies issued public privacy statements and consumers moved between apps as they perceived some to be more secure. And again, using air quotes here, and, you know, no stranger to privacy concerns, Flow, the ovulation and period tracker app, launched in an anonymous mode that fall. So 
seeing big names take some pretty big actions just to try to move quickly with making some of these changes. Another app called Embody took it a step further and decided to actually use cryptography to guarantee local storage of data and end-to-end -end encryption. So we're seeing these different actions vary between companies, but I think the important thing is that we're seeing unprecedented amount of consumer health companies across sectors, such as women's health, mental health, disease management, really analyzing their own data practices, reflecting, and, and then doing the important step of acting <laughs> and trying to protect their users more than they you know, maybe had to have considered before all of this changed. Thanks, Jen and Courtney. We were talking a little bit before the episode recording began around how this isn't necessarily a new concern, right? When we started to see these types of apps come out, there was a lot of conversation around like, where is this data going? How is it going to be used? And I think as the market has grown, there's just been so many different types of apps. We've all gotten so comfortable with almost this type of data collection being either under the radar, or almost like a pay to play, right? If you want to use the app, like you just have accepted that certain data is going to be collected. And then it may be like in my case, I'm just not, not thinking through exactly where's all that data possibly going. But Jen, as you said, the Dobbs decision really reinvigorated the data privacy conversation. I'd love to get into from your perspective, how has that really brought this topic into the foreground again and catalyzed this data privacy focus and concern, particularly in the consumer health space? When the Dobbs v. Jackson decision went into effect last year, some states began to actually criminalize abortion care. And you might hear a little bit of kind of a shock in my voice because, you know, that's a really big change. And many women became very concerned that their personal health data had the potential to be used against them in a legal capacity, which is a really big thing to kind of have to deal with and consider when just going about your healthcare journey. Some menstrual tracking apps collect very deeply personal information that you don't have to usually consider outside of the technology space having anyone have any knowledge of, right? Or even have any interest in. And so when a handful of these apps that users store data in, in the cloud were evaluated, there is no guarantee that this information was protected from third parties. This deeply personal information is extremely concerning for women. As we've seen cases over the last year where prosecutors have used even, you know, just text messages that people have or an online data that they're using as evidence in a legal case against women who are facing criminal trial for, for instance, terminating a pregnancy. Again, this, this becoming a, a legal issue is, is a really big turn. And even for some of the strongest privacy policies that we see, you know, they don't necessarily offer protections against subpoenas or requests from law enforcement, right? There, there might be some data privacy that you can have, but that doesn't necessarily protect you. There's the legal aspect really comes in and changes things here. Some states like California are putting laws in place to block out-of-state investigations from using digital information to query abortion-related actions that are legal in the state of California. But right now, you know, that's just one state and this is happening at a state-by-state -state level. And as we talked about before, when we consider things in that way, there's a lot of different states and a lot of different 
perspectives state by state. So it's it's important for people not to just think about the federal laws, but also, you know, where are you living, where are you getting care, and, and where is your data being stored and potentially used? Both gens mentioned this, right? Like this, this wasn't necessarily new before Dobbs, but we're seeing it in a whole new light now, I think, after, after Dobbs. It's really turned up the volume and scrutiny on this. And the amount of headlines and think pieces grappling with what does this mean beyond just the flurry of consumer switches? Like, What does this mean more broadly? What are all the implications of data and usage of it? It was even a topic at this year's South by Southwest that called for a paradigm shift, especially when it comes to health-related data. So instead of thinking of data as the new oil, right, or some sort of you know energy medium like that, it should be considered the new uranium, something that's really, really dangerous if not handled correctly. And this is according to the markups, Nabia Syed. And I just thought that was such an interesting analogy. There's a lot of power that could be harnessed with this, but there's a lot of danger too. Just describes the, you know, the current state really well. And yeah, you know, we've been talking about this in the context of women's health, but when you think about all the apps that people use, dating apps, exercise, women's health tracking apps, right? But, but much more broadly, consumer shopping apps. This isn't just limited to reproduction and, and women's health rights. All this third-party data, data usage could have broader implications. If we take the LGBT community as an example and look at Florida, the recent protection of the medical conscious bill allows providers and, and healthcare payers to refuse or provide to cover any type of healthcare services on basis of ethical, you know, moral and religious reasons. And you know, this I think raises a lot of question about the interaction of the legal realm and the type of data that companies, payers, providers have access to because of apps that you use on your phone or, or others. So it's just a, it's a really interesting time. And I think the implications are, are really, really broad here. I love that analogy as well, Courtney. I think being tapped into the industry, I've really heard this data is the new oil for so long. And now, particularly in the context of post-Dobbs, lack of reproductive rights, some of the movement, like you mentioned, that we're seeing in Florida, this thinking as myself, as a consumer of what data I'm sharing has been really reinvigorated. I had kind of glibly said before, I'd use these apps and not really think about where my data went. But now that's not a mindset that I, as a woman, can really afford. And I think it is a concern that is kind of rippling across the American population too, as these conversations are coming into focus again. And you mentioned a little bit about what some of these companies have started to do, you know, post Dobbs around actions to try to protect their users' information to the extent possible. I'm wondering if we can get into for those organizations that maybe haven't quite made that leap yet or kind of just at the beginning of the journey, what should they be thinking about when it comes to data privacy? Oh, there's so much. You know, there's some organizations that may be at the earlier stage of their journey, but I will say even for those that have started, this is going to continue to evolve. This is not a one-stop fix as technology evolves, as uh, legal implications evolve. I think everyone has a responsibility and a role to play in just continuing to protect consumers' sensitive health data. 
In addition to the actions we talked about earlier in the episode, companies should consider practicing data minimalization, connecting only the data that they actually need to use, using data that's collected only for authorized users and retaining as little of that data as possible after the use is completed and really the purpose is completed. So I think this is important to consider because it really is hard to ignore like truly lawful requests from prosecutors. While you can, of course, do as much as you can, you know, as an organization to protect what you can from from those requests, sometimes the best policy is just not to have that data. Companies can also work just to get smart on what the law enforcement access to data is allowed. And so they can know, you know, when and how to push back as I think companies, but also consumers should just do in general, right? We all should just be aware of the the laws of the states and, and places that we live. And so organizations for many reasons beyond data privacy are always hopefully considering that. So this is just something that I think let's get smart on that as well when it comes to data privacy more specifically. And they can also consider providing end-to-end encryption by default on messaging apps and emails instead of having that be something that you know, is optional or, you know, maybe sometimes doing just having default protections where possible uh, can really help just improve the process overall and kind of give the company, I'd say, peace of mind, but also that again, enhances consumer confidence when they're utilizing an app. Yeah, the power of opting out, right, versus opting in and what that drives in terms of users' decisions. But yeah, this can seem, I think, like a burden on companies, and, and it is in one respect, and certainly you know can be a big investment depending on the changes that they need to make. But really, I think there, there are some a silver lining here. Some of these approaches that you mentioned, Jen, may yield some dividends in the long term. So we know customer data is growing in terms of the type, amount, accessibility, access, you know, all the above, right? And, and the opportunities from data really are endless we have to keep in mind that the power of data in a, in a good way, right, can lead to a lot of advancements. But we also know that trust plays a major role in consumer decision-making. They're becoming more educated about the misuse of their data and the rights that they have. And, you know, that's impacting their behavior in terms of which apps and companies they engage with. But we also know that consumers, they are willing to share their data if they see a benefit to themselves or potentially the greater good. And if they feel like they can trust the company, those two things combined you know, have to be present. So with that, now data privacy can become not just a differentiating factor for a company, but it really could lead to a unique competitive advantage down the line as they gain trust, gain access, and can leverage the data that consumers choose to share with them. Certainly a lot of investment and, and burden that can be placed on companies, but but there is, you know, an upside here and an opportunity for companies here too as well. I love this idea of seeing a strong data privacy, a consumer-focused data privacy mindset, policy practice for these consumer health technologies as really potentially being a source of value for them. To your point, when we're thinking about the pendulum swinging to encourage more data privacy, it can feel like you're cutting off a core strength of these companies at the knees, but seeing how can we transform that into a win-win for these organizations and for patients at a whole is, is really an encouraging mindset to take. And I'm hopeful we'll start to see more progress 
in that direction, even though it might have been catalyzed by a quite unfortunate decision from the Supreme Court. I just want to thank you both for coming on the podcast, Jen and Courtney. I certainly learned a lot and have a totally different mindset now when it comes to thinking through data privacy for all my apps, but particularly for consumer health. I'm hopeful that our listeners feel like they learned something new and have some ideas for how they can put this into practice in their own lives and in their organizations. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.